we packed our bags and we went to India for a week and it was just insane. We literally just went straight to that man's office. It was almost when you get out of the water and you can breathe again. He opened his doors and I was like, this is where I'm meant to be. For me, it was as if I was waking up. Hi there, and a warm welcome to the Derby podcast, where I interview people who have followed their passion and mission. My guest in this episode is Anna Molinari, who is the founder of the jewelry brand Atelier Molinari. She shares the pivotal moments in her story of falling in love with art at school and being challenged for it, of the magical trip to the Gem Palace in Jaipur in India, when she instantly knew she was meant to become a jewelry designer, of the sacrifices she's had to make for six years, of a long underground learning journey through Jaipur, Paris, London, and New York, of the crazy day when the buyer of one of the most prestigious retail stores in the world offered her to sell her own jewelry creations. I hope you get inspired by her courage and determination to pursue her dream and make it happen. Anna, it's a real pleasure to have you on the, the Debbie podcast. Thank you for joining. And to get us started, can you tell us what you do? First of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'm a jewelry designer and a stone sourcer and a diamond dealer as well. Can you tell a little more about what does your day-to-day look like, feel like? Uh, every day is different. Monday is my most hectic day because it's the <laughs> I force myself not to work on the weekend to have a healthier lifestyle. And then on Monday, I will go through all of my to-do lists and I'm very excited about everything I have to do. And so there is a lot of emails, a lot of suppliers I have to reply to. I have to give quotes. I have to call back my suppliers to get, I don't know, a stone or a diamond that I have to source or I have to draw some new sketches or it's very varied, which I love about my job. I would say you've got a lot of emails. Yeah. To maybe tell us who, I don't know if you can name customers or suppliers. So because of what I do, I can't name customers because it's quite high value purchases. And a lot of them actually don't know who they are because they're being proposed to. So a lot of my clients are ask me to keep the secret because they're going to propose to in three months, six months. One asked me to keep the secret for two years because you had doubts. <laughs> so I can't really reveal this. But for my suppliers, they're going to be suppliers in India because I've worked and I still work with a lot of suppliers and makers in India. There are suppliers in Paris, suppliers in London, but they're very niche suppliers. They could be gem sourcers, they could be rough buyers, they could be gem cutters, diamond suppliers, gold traders, it depends. Wow. So you're at the center of that jewelry trade. Can you talk about retail customers? Yep. So I also actually today is the main aspect of my day today is retailers. So for example, I'm working with Le Bon Marché for the past four years. And they're launching a new project to for their 170th birthday party. So the theme is orange. So they've asked me to source orange stones and to design specific pieces for them. So there's a lot of back and forth about import, export, the invoices, inventory, things like this. It sounds like you have a very diverse work. What do you enjoy doing the most? But if I was to pick something, I would say drawing because I get lost when I lost in my mind and lost in my inspiration and lost in my little bubble when I draw and I forget the noises around me and it's very soothing. But then what makes me really vibrate is when I, I hold stones and I have to pick stones. For me, this is the moment where I feel most alive. So there's really those two aspects that I like for very mm. different reasons. 
I get very excited by the stone sourcing and I'm at peace when I draw. They go hand in hand. So like you need one to complete the other. So when you start drawing, obviously I draw jewelry. So I'm going to think about the whole engineering of a piece. And then I'm also going to think of like splashes of color and splashes of color means precious gems. Some stones will have very vibrant color and they'll make you very excited. And some stones will be very calming and they'll almost remind you of the sea or like vacation. And then some will make you think of fireworks. So they really bring out some emotions in people. So when I draw, I also think of this. And then when I hold the stones and I feel the emotions that drive from the stones. Do you first draw and then look for the stone or do you find the stone and then draw? It depends. My collection has a very distinctive signature, which is the lace work, which I'll show you on the video. It's, you see this pattern on the back? So it's all cut out, it's all cut out gold. So some pieces I'll find the stone and then it's almost like I'll create a dress for it. And then sometimes it'll be the opposite. I'll design a sort of cage that is made out of gold and then I'll I'll maybe hide a stone in it or I'll put the stone in the center of it so it'll be almost like thrown for the stone. Tell us more about when you draw. I love drawing rings, so I'll very often draw rings and then I'll think, oh, I meant to draw a pair of earrings and so I'll change the ring into an earring. Oh, it's the feeling of you have this empty page and it's, it's limitless. What you can draw, you can't necessarily make real because gold as a material has its limits because it's a soft material and then you have to solder it, you have to pierce it, you have to file it. So there's a lot of limitations and also it's going to be worn on the body. So then you have a notion of weight, but when you draw, there's no limitation. You can draw anything. And so it's quite fun to just let your imagination run wild and then have your pencil just from a simple line, become a 3D sketch that can potentially become a piece of jewelry. This is what I love. You said earlier, when you draw, you lose yourself. Can you describe a little more what happens? So my brother loves to read. He says he has the same feeling when he reads. You lose track of time and you go so deep into your thoughts that you, your surroundings almost don't exist. And you're like in this like numbness of, of happiness. And you're just so focused. At least I'm focused on my drawing. And everything else switches off, which is really nice. It's interesting because what you're describing like perfectly is what's called the experience of flow that has been documented it when people are at a task and experienced feeling like one with the task Mm. there is no me and the object just i'm in it in a way do you have an experience drawing i don't know necklaces or Mm. earrings you know what i find necklaces challenging because a ring for me is like a little sculpture a necklace has to move with your shoulder, your neck, it has to have a certain length. So depending on if you're a woman or a man, like it has to hit a certain point. So there's a lot of limitations and also earrings. There's the notion of weight because you don't want to pull too hard on a woman's ear node. You don't want to deform it. Whereas a ring, you could go as heavy as you want or as thin as you want. There's no limitation. The only thing is it has to fit on a finger. That's it. The rest, you can do whatever you want. Interesting. I never thought of this. And what, do you remember the first time you drew your first ring? I mean, I always loved jewelry, but so I would make it out of paper. I would make it out of, so my mom used to smoke. So I used to take off the little paper, the gold paper on top of the cigarettes. I would ask her to save me those papers. I shouldn't say this, but then I would make little rings out of it. Or when you pop a bottle of champagne, 
I would always keep the little cork that what goes on top of the cork. I would make jewelry out of this. And then when we, when I was in school, I would make, what did I use? Felt that would I would cut and I would sew to make gem shapes. And then I would give this for my friend's birthday. But the actual first piece of jewelry that I designed, I think would be the one that I already showed you. Actually, it's this one. And it's a ring that has, it's called a Russian emerald. It's a turquoise-like colored emerald. It's very vibrant as a color. It reminds me of the sea. And so this stone was sat on my desk at an internship in India. And it stayed there for months and months. And I could not give it back. Like, I remember thinking like, I'm going to be heartbroken if I give it back. So I kept on asking my supervisor. I kept on telling him like, oh, no, no, please, one more day, one more day. And then one day he came up to me and he was like, look, your birthday's coming up. Maybe you should ask your parents to get it for you. And I was thinking this stone, I can't like, I can't ask for it. It's such a big stone. Like I, I can't ask for this. And so we made a deal with the, with the person who gave me the internship is that instead of paying me the full amount, he would put a little amount aside. And he said, after that amount of time, you'll have saved up for that stone. But don't worry, if you want to ever want to give the stone back, you'll give it back. And so I thought, oh my God, that's so amazing. I'll do this. And so that after two years, finally, I got the stone and I thought I need to design something that I'm going to use every day. And so I designed a ring that you could also wear as a pendant. So you could detach the top part of the ring and it could become a pendant. And as an engineer point of view, it was very clever, but it wasn't practical because it kept on falling off. So then I soldered it and it became a ring. But that also became the number one piece that started the entire collection of my brands. And how long did it take to, for you to design and to actually, I guess, even get that yeah. final piece? So my, in West. so I studied jewelry. So I did, I, what was it? It was a first year of foundation where you do a lot of different types of art. I went to Central Samaritans and then I got onto the BA for jewelry design at Central Samaritans. And during that BA, they really help you that, to create a personality in your work or almost like a language through your drawing. And so throughout my three years, I was really intrigued by the concept of delicate jewelry or like a fabric, like jewelry or textile becoming uh, gold. And so throughout those three years, I explored all of this. I wrote my thesis on this, and then I went to India for my internship. And this is where I really worked on creating lace out of gold. So all in all, I'd mm. say three or four years in total, but the ring to make, it took maybe two weeks, two months. Okay. Because the first time we did it, it wasn't quite right. Then you have to redo it again and then again and again. And then until you're happy with it, then you make it into gold and then you're always tweaking it. And I think it's changed five times <laughs> the design. And you said earlier, there is a, another thing that you really enjoy about your work is collecting stones. Yeah. What about it is respectful to you? First of all, the whole process is insane. You're sat at a desk in a very empty room. All the offices are the same, very empty room, a big table, and you have those men coming in the room and they look at you like, oh, you're very young. You're a woman. Oh, okay. And then they lay out all of their stones, but like thousands of stones. And then they see you have a bit of knowledge. And so they get excited about it. So they show you 
more impressive stones. And then you ask the right questions until you're shown the biggest stone they have or the most precious stone they have. And it's this conversation that starts between you and the person opposite you. And it's actually, we have the same passion and we speak the same language and you're excited about what you're looking at. And they're excited to show you what they found because they actually go to the mine. They actually go to the stone cutters. I only get to see the stones once they're cut, once they're in little parcels of papers. So before that, the, that there's been like four or five processes before I get to see them. So they also tell you that story. So it's sharing that experience that I enjoy as a first part. And then very often they'll leave the room because they have other business to do. And they leave you with this table full of stones and you get to pick whatever you want. And then it's, I describe it as if you're a child and you like candy, this is the dreamland. Like you're literally just, you just want to grab everything, but then it's dangerous because they're expensive. So they live in a room with a thousand stones. There's a thousand cameras in the room. And also the jewelry industry is a very small industry and it's all about trust. So to enter that room, you've had to prove yourself. You've had to be invited to that in that room. You've had to have references to be sat where you're sat. And then if you, if you, I don't know how you say this, if you cut the trust, you'll never be allowed in a room again. And in a second, it can stop. So once there's trust, mm. there's a hundred percent trust. So they'll leave you with a table with a thousand yeah. stones. You'll be on your own in this very bare room. So what happened? Then, so the stones, the way they're presented is in a very small parcel of paper. So the table is not full of literally stones. They're full of little parcels. And so then you get to open them one by one. And then at first I come in, I have a budget. I have a list of requirements. I have my client's request. I know what I'm looking for. And then all of this, all of a sudden, my mind goes whoosh, everything erases. And I'm just overly excited. And so for an hour, I'll look at everything and I let my mind wander. Sometimes I'll have ideas for new projects. Sometimes I'll think of another client and I'll actually message them on the spot. WhatsApp is actually a great invention because I get to message my clients on the spot. I get to do deals at my client's, my supplier's office. So this also allows me to pick and choose stones for my collection, pick and choose stones for new projects, but also directly sell to my customer. So then I'll have a tray where I put all my selection. And then there's an assistant to the gem dealer that comes in. And how do you select? So I have specific requirements. And then I also allow a bit of my budget to just fall in love with a lot of stones. <laughs> Because you never, thing is, it's a natural product. So you never know what's going to, what's going to arrive on the desk. So it's almost like when you go to the market, you might want to do, I don't know, a ratatouille, but maybe the, those produce are not in season. So then you'll change your mind and you'll do, I don't know, something like a quiche Lorraine or I don't, you'll do something completely different. So you also have to keep an open, open mind to, to allow what the supplier has found and what is available from those mines, because you have to respect the product. So whatever comes to you, you have to embrace it. And if also what you're looking for is not there, then you have to be quick on your feet and say, okay, I didn't find this, but I can find something else. Yeah. And you explained earlier the stone sort of generate emotions yeah. for you, right? Or they make you remember certain moments or places. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little more about this? 
Yeah, so I never really believed that until I saw the turquoise stone I was telling you about, the emerald. I really, I always mm. thought like, before I started jewelry, I thought there's diamonds, sapphires, rubies, and emerald. And you're lucky if you ever get one in your life, or you're lucky if your family has family stones, but it's not accessible to most people. In my family, not a lot of people have jewelry. So for me, it was something that belonged to other people. And then actually the first memory I have of a stone is my dad took me to a store and there was a moonstone. And I remember him telling, so moonstones are, they're like milky stones with on the top layer, there's like a reflection of a dark blue. So they look magical, honestly. And so I remember him giving me the stone and telling me, which is a complete lie, by the way, he told me those stones, they fall from the moon. They're like shooting stars. They come from the moon and they drop on the earth and you have a little piece of the moon. And so I thought, oh my God, this is magical. And so from that point on, I was like, oh, there's more stones than just those four precious stones. And then I had the emerald on my desk and the emotions I felt towards that stone and the fact I couldn't give it back. I understood why in some cultures people feel and believe that stones have powers, whether it's true or not, that's for you to, it's your decision. But for me, I felt it with that specific stone. And when you're choosing the stones, do you also feel it? I'll only choose stones that I feel in the industry. We say they have to speak to you. And I'll always speak, pick stones that I feel are alive, that they have a certain, I don't know, they feel electric. So whether it's like an orange stone or a green stone or a blue stone, for me, they have to have this electricity in it. I'm learning so much from this conversation already and immersing myself into what it's like to be in your shoes. So thanks for sharing all of this. Now, you alluded a little bit to your journey to get there. Can you tell us where would you start that journey? I could tell you the studies that I did and everything, but I think it starts before that. I grew up in London. I'm half French, half Italian. And I went to a school that for, I always knew it was a good school, but for me, it was too strict. And it was very hard because I didn't find my place because I was made to feel like I wasn't good enough, except on Friday afternoon, we had three hours of art and I lived for those three hours. For me, it was what made the week bearable. It was knowing that I would end my week with those three hours of art. And in those three hours, the teacher would give us projects. She would, I don't know, she had pigments, she had watercolors, she had all the papers you can think of. And it was the moment where really I felt alive in the week. And it was a moment also with a lot of my friends where we were allowed to be foolish and really express ourselves. And I remember the, um, I think when we were 16, 15 or 16, we were called to, to say what we wanted to do afterwards in life, what our big goal was. And I remember saying, I want to do art. I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do art. And the teacher just looked at me like, she's crazy. No one does this. Like I was maybe there was maybe two students in my entire year who wanted to do art. So I got called in by the head teacher and she asked me if my parents knew that this was a big problem. And I was like, yeah, and they're actually really encouraging me to do this because they can see I'm alive doing this. And I remember saying this and thinking, how can she ask me this? She can see that I'm alive when I do art. Like, why is she asking me this? The role of a head teacher is to make children feel alive and why would she break me into or actually put me in a box and put me in a mold and then everyone else that's 
that was my worst nightmare. So then I told my parents that experience and they were like, this is shocking. Whatever happens, we're going to help you go to the best school. And as a family, we looked at all the schools and we decided that St. Martin's was the best and it would be the only one I would apply to and it would be the one I would get into. And I thought it was very pretentious at the time because I knew how big this school was. I don't think my parents realized that they were like, we're going to do everything for you to be motivated to get in. We had to present 10 projects at the time. And then either you got in by interview, you got in by your portfolio, or you got in by, I think there was a three-day examination that you could go through as well. So I presented my portfolio and I got in without an interview, without nothing. They just accepted me on the projects I presented, which were on femininity and how a child becomes a woman and how you perceive yourself, others perceive you. And so they really liked that idea. So I got in foundation year and then I did a whole year where... So Anna, so can you share a little more? So you were 15 or 16. And so St. Martin's is two or three years later. So two or three years you prepared. Your art teacher was aware? Yeah. So I went to see her. I told her I'm applying to this school. And she said, there's no reason why you wouldn't get in. And so the fact that my parents believed in me, she believed in me. I'm not sure I believed in myself, but having those people behind me be like, you can do this. I, yeah, I worked a lot on that portfolio. I remember working a lot on it. It's the first Mm -hmm. time I actually felt like I'm enjoying working on something. If you ask me to do math or geography or philosophy, I would literally cry in front of my worksheet. But if you ask me to stay up at, until two in the morning to draw and sketch and paint, I'm happy. So happy. Amazing. How was it yeah. in St. Martin's? It's funny because I thought I was very nervous because I thought I'm from a French school where it's very proper. You're, everyone dresses the same. Everyone walks the same. Everyone talks the same. And then you enter this art school and you're allowed to be whatever you want to be. And it's funny because I felt like when you're like in front of a big void and you're like, oof, like it's quite impressive. But then everyone is just so happy to be there and everyone is so open-minded and so inclusive. And also everyone is from everywhere. So everyone has a story, everyone has a past, everyone has a goal. So, which is quite, it's really inspiring to be amongst people who really want to make it also through their passion. And you're surrounded by tutors that are extremely passionate. How did you get into jewelry? At that time, I just knew I wanted to do art. And so the way that school works is they'll do six months of you trying everything. You have to do product design, fashion design fashion communication, jewelry, textile, and you can think of fine art, anything. And then after six months, they tell you, okay, what didn't you like? And it's very easy to say, I don't like this. It's much harder to say, I love this. Very easy to say, for example, I hated fashion, hated it. Didn't like the tutoring, didn't like the students, didn't like the project. So I was like, fashion is out. Then I thought, I quite like product design, but do I want to make this my job? I'm not sure, so I'll keep it as a maybe. So by elimination, I ended up with textile and jewelry. And so my tutor said, we're good at both. So why don't you apply to both BAs? And I thought, okay, but that's hard because you're doubling on your full-time studying. So it's quite hard. And so I was discussing this with someone who told me, I think you should do jewelry because 
I think I have a way to convince you. And I thought, interesting. And so this woman who's actually my parents' age said, one of my best friends is a jewelry designer. I'd love for you to meet him. And I said, great, let's go. But then she said, he's in India. <laughs> and I, at the time I was, I think 19. And I said, oh no, that's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and then I told my brother, who's four years older than I am. And my brother was like, are you stupid? This is your one opportunity. And because you're scared of a trip, you're saying no. And so he said, you know what? I'll go with you. And so we packed our bags and we went to India for a week. And it was just insane. We literally just went straight to that man's office. And for me, it was almost like, like when you get out of the water and you're, you can breathe again. Like it's, he opened his doors and I was, this is where I'm meant to be. Like it, it, honestly, for me, it was as if I was waking up. And when I was in Europe, for me, jewelry was Place Vendôme, white gloves. You don't touch anything. If you can't afford it, you can't even look at it. With him, it was you can touch everything, you can try everything, and I don't care if you can afford it or not, you're here to enjoy it. And this is the way he treats everyone. And so for me, that was very magical to be able to just look at the pieces from every angle, to see how flexible they were, to try them on, to weigh the stones, weigh the gold, and to ask him also all my questions, like, how do you design this? How do you make this? How... What do people feel when they wear this? And it, it was nice just to communicate with him. And I also showed him my drawings. And he said, after those three days, he said, okay, I'm going to sponsor your degree show. Because at the degree show, you have to present three pieces of jewelry in gold. And he said, I'm going to sponsor it, but you're going to have to work for me after. And so I said, that's fine, but I don't want to live in India. <laughs> And so he said, that's fine, because I have an office in New York and I know you want to study diamonds. So you're going to study diamonds in New York and you're going to work for me in New York. So I said, I like this idea. So I went home, completely forgot about textile. I did my six months of preparing the degree show. And it's funny because actually textile kept, was still in the back of my mind because I ended up designing lace made out of gold. And then I sent him the pictures of my project. I sent him the invitation to the degree show. And all he replied was, I look forward to you working with me. And I knew this meant, I look forward to you moving to India. I was like, oh God, I'm 21. And I'm thinking, great, I'm going to New York with my two best friends. We're going to study diamonds. We're going to go out. We're going to go to all the museums we want to see. It's going to be amazing. And so I get to New York, I do, it's a three-month course. So I do the three-month course. And at the three, end of the three-month course, he comes to me and he's like, did you book your plane ticket yet? And I'm like, no, I really don't want to move to India. Honestly, like, it's too much as a girl. Oh, really in India? In Jaipur. And what's the man's name? Munu Kasliwal. So he runs a part of Gem Palace. He does one-off pieces for... Any name you can think of, he will have designed a piece of jewelry for them. And every piece will be unique. And he will carve the stone and he will set the stone. And he was the number one seller at Barney's. He has an office in New York where literally you'll have, I remember my biggest sale was to Diane von Furstenberg, a full necklace, no, a full diamond necklace, which I remember her saying, ha ha ha, they're so big. They look like muscles. And I was like, okay, I wish I had this kind of money to 
by Muscle Lake Diamond. Finally, I decided I need to stop being scared and I need to go there. I'll figure it out once I'm there. So I moved to India. And I remember when I landed being like, this is the worst idea I've had. What am I doing here? And I was so scared. Like as a woman 10 years ago over there was really scary. And I ended up in a bedroom in the middle of nowhere. And I just didn't feel safe. But then slowly, because I was so passionate about what I did on a day-to-day basis, it made it okay for me to be there. And then I started getting over the fear of being so far and being in a country where you don't have the same rights that you do in Europe, but you'd forget it when you're in Europe. Like women are not treated the same in India that they are in France or London, you know? Yeah. How many women were in the craft shop or the other? In the entire office? No, there was no one. The women were only in the shop. Yeah. What did you enjoy doing the most there? Honestly, a bit of everything. I quite, I really liked the gem cutting office. Because this I hadn't seen before and it was really nice. And also I was the first girl they allowed to touch the machine. So I was very proud of this. Eight months it took me to be able to sit and to try the cutting machine. They still remember. I went there two months ago and I looked at the guy who taught me and he was like, do you remember? (laughs) You're the first one. And I was like, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I think for me this was the most exciting. And then also because I was quite young, it was funny to see famous people come into the office and be fascinated by all the jewelry we were showing them. So what happened next? So then, to be very honest, I found living in India, it was fun and it was exciting and it was new and it's very different. But to be truly transparent, it's really hard as a girl. Like you, you don't have the same liberties. You have like just walking in the street, you can't do this as a girl. Like you'll get annoyed or you'll get followed or it's not easy, honestly. And I didn't really feel safe and honest, honestly, I missed home and I missed my family and I missed my friends. And I remember thinking, no matter how big my passion is and how exciting this is, it's not enough. Like, I need to be close to the people that I love. And I thought, like, how can I maintain this sort of excitement in my life, but be close to my family? And so I thought... Okay, this is clearly what I want to do. I clearly want to have my own brand, but how do I get there with no money? (laughs) And so I Mm. made a list of different designers and whether they were... So Anna, before you move on to this, how long did you stay in India? Two years and a half. Two years and a half in Jaipur. Wow. This is another thing, like when summer hits and when I say summer, it's May, beginning of May, and it gets to 41, 45, 47. You're just, oh, it's just so much. And again, like the first year is fun. The second you're like, oh, okay. And you're the, going into the third, you're like, no, it's not feasible. Like I, I can't do this. I got a part-time job for a woman who works in Paris and produces in India. She was actually my way out. I worked for her in Paris and I utterly hated it. <laughs> and so I went to her and I said, look, I'm just not happy. So... I love what you do. I love your work. I love the stones, but I hate this office life. And she said, I'm opening a store in New York. I need someone to put a team in place and I need someone to actually help me with aftercare. And because I had the knowledge, off I went to New York and I worked with her for six months. And so after the six months, I remember thinking, oh, there's this really cool exhibition at the Met. But it's opening a month after the end of my contract. 
and I don't have enough money in my bank account to stay. I need a new internship. <laughs> and so I looked at all the different designers in jewelry that had offices in New York. And I thought, who can I, who will hire me for a mission that will allow me to stay to see the Met exhibition, which was on my favorite jewelry designer, who's a pioneer in the industry. And I thought, actually, this is a good idea to start and do a web of designers that will teach me different aspects of the job. I saw it almost as studying. So I thought, who can teach me import? Who can teach me client relationship? Who can teach me invoicing? Who can teach me how to build a relationship with re retailers, press? And so after I finished that six-month mission, I applied to a job that hired me in New York. I got to see the math exhibition, which was, I was really excited about. And then I worked for another designer and another designer, and which took me back to India back to Paris, London, New York. And so that was, I kept on going back and forth. And then after five years, I thought enough, I want to go home again. <laughs> so I came back home and I thought. And all of this, knowing that you wanted to build and launch your yeah. own brand. So I had actually, when I was, when I finished St. Martin's, I actually deposited the name of my brand. So I deposited Atelier Molinari in 2013 and I thought, if the, if the brand exists, I have to make it exist. So after, I think it was five or six years of working for various designers on the side, I was always building my projects. I was taking in all the knowledge that I had. And I actually had a journal. I would write everything almost like a textbook because I thought this is like studying. Can't forget anything that I'm learning. And so after those six years, I was working for a designer in London and she got asked to do a pop-up at Beaumarchais in Paris, which is a big retailer store. Actually, it's the first mall that ever existed, a multi-brand store. And so I was the only French speaking person in the company. They said, oh, can you cover for two months? And during those two months, actually, I got scouted for my own brand by the buyers of the Marché. I didn't tell them I had my own brand, the, the salespeople knew and they told them. And so I got asked to go up into the big higher offices. I was very nervous about this because I thought, oof, I've done something wrong. I'm going to be told off. I don't have a job anymore. Where am I going to sleep? And so I get into that office and they're like, so we've seen your collection. The only thing we would request is for you to have a new website, a new photo shoot, a lookbook, and then we're going to give you the chance of a window for three months. And I was like, what? Sorry, what did you just say? And they said, yes. Now you need to quit your job because it's a big opportunity and we need you full-time here. So this happened all of a sudden. I was like, what is happening? I was shaking. And I remember coming out of Beaumarché being like, wow, like all my hard work, all my sleepless nights, all my giving up on weekends, giving up on holidays, this is finally happening for me. And I remember I was shaking and I remember I called my mom and I was like, huh? Can you imagine they want my jewelry there? And she said, what did you expect? Of course they wanted. And I was like, what? Like, what is happening? And so then there was a big stress because I had to fill in that cabinet. And I remember thinking, I don't have the money to produce all of this. I don't have the money to buy all those stones because the hard thing about jewelry is that the material is expensive. Mm. And so I thought you know what, you've made it happen until now, you're going to make it happen. 
So I called all my, all the people I knew in India and I was like, look, this is the opportunity. This is the story. This is what they're asking. Do you want to support? And so the way jewelry works is that very often you'll be loaned stones and you can pay for them when you sell them. And so I said, look, you have to give me a chance for three months. I'll borrow the stone. And then if I don't sell them, I'll return everything in three months and I'll pay for whatever I've sold in those three months. And I was lucky enough that I got backed by a gem dealer that literally said, I believe in you from day one, so you can pick whatever you want. You don't have to return them. Just keep them for a year if you need. Let's see what happens. And then someone else supported me for the gold. But for the gold, it was different. I had three months to pay for it. So that was a bit of a nerve. Like, it was stressful. And also no bank wanted to back me because at that time I, would, I was 28. And they were like, okay, you're cute, but... But how can we trust you with so much gold and so much gems? So no bank wanted to back me. So I thought, okay, I need to have my suppliers back me. So they backed me and then Beaumarché said, you have to hit a number, but we're not going to give you the number, but you have to hit a number in order for us to keep you and to give you a longer chance at Beaumarché. So I remember the first day I showed my jewelry and no one stopped. No customers stopped. It was a, it was in August. There was no one. So you were there. At the yeah, yeah. I had to sell. I had to sell my jewelry. It was part of the deal. <laughs> it was horrible. I had to be the person being like, "This is beautiful. This is amazing." When you're selling your own thing, it's so hard to say. Also, like in the French way, you do things. You're told never to promote yourself, never to boast about what you have, what you can do. So I was just like, wow, this is hard. And I remember again, calling my parents being like, this is so hard. No one's looking at my jewelry. (laughs) And my dad said something, which I still use to this day. He said, it's fine. Just sell your workers piece. You're not selling your drawings. You're selling your craftsman's work. You're selling their skills. You're selling the stones of your supplier. You're selling what their mind. You're not selling your work. You're selling their job. And for me, it was much easier to brag about someone else. And so I started telling the stories about the craftsmen, about how they're doing this from generations and generations. And I was telling the stories about the, um, my supplier who had actions in the mines in Tanzania or in, in Zambia, where he was getting all his emeralds. And because I was sharing those stories, the customers became involved with the product and It wasn't just about it being a pretty, pretty piece of jewelry. And so I started selling and I remember thinking, I haven't sold even half of my cabinet. This is so bad. I'm never going to be accepted. And so after a month of being at the Beaumarché, again, I get pulled in the big office and again, I'm sweating and I'm shaking and I'm like, this is it. This is the end. And they're like, okay, so you've doubled the number we wanted you to hit in three months. So you're definitely having the cabinet. Can you do more pieces? And I was like, what? So that happened. And then at the same time, I got a call from Fortnum and Mason. It is more known for a food court, but on the second floor, they've invested 7 million in luxury goods. So they also bought the collection. So those two are the big retailers that really pushed me to be able to Mm. go fully on my brand and no longer have a part-time job because the sales were happening. I had more money to invest and I could produce more and it was easier. 
stressful but easy. Yeah, you said to get to this moment when the buyer of the Bon Marché called you up in the mm-hmm. high office, you had to go for sleepless nights, long weekends, a working weekend. Mm. What kept you going during those years? The founder of Coca-Cola always said for everyone it happens overnight. But it's a struggle until it happens. And everyone forgets the struggle. Everyone just sees the success. And for me, it was, I would say, five or six years of real struggle, of really like, really thinking it's never going to happen. But there was, for me, there was no option but to continue. There was no, giving up was not an option. And I remember thinking, Mm. I haven't sacrificed that much not to make it happen. So when I had a job, I had 23 days of holidays. Those 23 days were for me to go to India and to work in India. So it means five days of not having holidays with my friends, with my family. I kept Christmas. I kept three days at Christmas to be with my family, but I sacrificed all of my friends' holidays. I didn't attend some weddings, but I knew it was a sacrifice that would pay off. And I think mm. I'm, I've worked since I'm 15. So I always knew that working would get me somewhere. I knew that my job would allow me to get to where I wanted to be. And for me, your work should be what makes you happy. It's not enjoyable every day, but it, the good days are really good days. And the joys you get out of it are, there are such highs that I wish anyone could feel this. So it's chair one. You know what? I get I get a lot of enjoyment when I deliver engagement because first, like very often you get the guy that will come to see you. He's very nervous. He's shaking. He's sweating. And he's I have this big life decision. And no, oh, I have no idea about diamonds and the budget. And so it's quite cute to, to play almost like the therapist that is, okay, relax. Here's a glass of water. Breathe. What is your budget? And then it's funny, the conversation that like, they tell you little things about their girlfriend that is soon going to be their fiance. And it, and you get to create this piece of jewelry that eventually they'll tell their children about it. And you get to be part of this story. You get to exist through this little piece of jewelry. And I find this magical. So every engagement ring, for me, there's a little sparkle. It's funny, like very often that people get excited about what I do. And they're like, oh, what's the most valuable stones you've held? Or what's the most expensive piece of jewelry you sold? And very often I, I think about this. My mom has a friend who her engagement ring is actually for me the cutest story. They went to the, they were at the park with her boyfriend, but she's 60 now. So a while ago and she turned around and he was on his knee and he had, he had used like a little twig of wood or grass. No, I think it's wood because it's dried. And he made like this little ring for her. And he said, I don't have the money today, but all I know is I want you to be like my wife for the like and have children with you and made this whole big speech and, and he put the ring on her finger but it was like a piece of wood and she kept this piece of wood and I told her you, you we can melt this into gold and so we've actually melted we made it we didn't actually we didn't we made a cast out of it so we protected the initial wood we made a cast mm. out of it and we made it into a ring and it's funny because years later he got her a, a very nice diamond a very nice engagement ring but still today, she says it's the piece of wood that is more valuable to her than the actual engagement ring. That is really cool. I've got a rapid fire set of questions. What's the most important lesson you've learned from your journey so far? To not give up. What's been most rewarding in your journey? I think it's a lot of little wins. I think you have to celebrate every win. 
So how do you celebrate your little wins today? I think you should celebrate as much as when I got, for example, Bon Marché, you should also celebrate selling a simple wing. So the way I celebrate is, it's very internally, like I take a moment and I just smile and I'm like, oh, this, I get to live this life. And I also pick a friend and I take them to the restaurant, but they don't know it. Oh, <laughs> I actually never tell they them. They don't know. No, <laughs> I once we're at the restaurant, I'm like, oh, by the way, we're celebrating this tonight. Very cool. What's been most challenging? Uh, the sacrifices, because when you're tired and, and you want to give up, it's hard to believe in a project that feels so far away. Yeah. Now, what experience has helped you grow the most? I think any experience in life you should learn from. I think every travel, every trip, you, you should take something with you and every person you meet, you should, everyone has something to teach you. So I wouldn't have a specific answer for this. I think everything. And who inspired you and how? I think there's two people. So definitely Munu, who we spoke about quite a bit because he was really an eye-opener. And then there's someone we didn't mention actually in this interview. It was Marie-Christine, who I did an internship in Plaisando. I mentioned it earlier and she was in charge of me. And she was a little old lady and she had worked there for 35 years. And I saw, I remember her. She was very sweet and she had the sweetest voice and she was always very quiet. and. She was put in this office very far away from everyone, but she had so many things to say and so many stories. And she was always willing to help and willing to show you what she was seeing or, cause it's important. Not everyone looks at everything the same way. So it's important when you see someone who you think is talented or has a knife or something, I think it's always important to ask them, what do you see? Because they'll point out a detail that you not necessarily notice. So with her, it was a lot of this. Mm. And it's funny, I saw her the other day in Paris. I always ask her for coffee and I saw her the other day and she was so excited. And I was like, what's happening? And she was like, I went to Beaumarché. Your dream has come true. And it's funny because I never realized this was my actual dream. But for her, this was my dream. And to see the excitement in her, like she was almost living through me and what she had taught me. And I thought that was magical. I don't know if the Bomafi was your dream, but it sounds like you've, you've gone a long way on getting your dream real. And last thing, is there anything else you would have liked to share? I would say like to anyone who's listening to never give up on whatever their dream is. And it's not, it's okay not to know what your dream is. Just if something makes you feel alive, you should go for it. You don't have to, you don't have to quit your job. You don't have to just do more of it. Just feel alive. Anything like that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Derby podcast. I hope you got inspired to follow your mission with passion. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. I would also really appreciate it if you can leave a review on your podcast platform. It makes a huge difference and it will help others get inspired by these stories too. Till next time, Derby yourself.